take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin by looking at a passage in this first chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. If I were to ask you what is the, the theme of the Bible, I think most people who have read the Bible and have studied the Scriptures would give the same answer, and that is the salvation of mankind. And that is the theme of the Bible. The Bible begins with that in the garden after man's sin, and then we see that theme running throughout the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament, and then the story is continued in the book of Acts as well as the epistles and even in the book of Revelation. But that's not the only theme about which we read in Scripture. There are several other themes that connect with that one, that line up with that one, and I'd like to address one of those themes with you this morning. And it's a theme that can be taken from, again, this first chapter of 1 Corinthians and verse 25. And that is the theme that we see in the Bible. The wisdom and power of God. If I were to ask you to comment on God's wisdom and God's power, how would you respond? Well, I think a good place to begin is with what Paul wrote about it. And this is what he wrote. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul was writing to a church that was in a very wicked city. It was, a, it was a city that the name to Corinthianize came to mean to sin. It was a city of vice. But it was also a city of great learning. A city that boasted of its wisdom, of its ability through logic to reach proper and correct conclusions. It possibly would have been a city that would have said, well, let's go to the scientist. And let's let them answer these questions that we have. But in that situation, in that environment, it's not going to be easy to preach the gospel because the message of salvation, what we would learn about the wisdom and the power of God, cannot be learned through science. It cannot be learned through human reasoning human wisdom, it cannot be learned through logic. And that's the very nature of the statement that is made here. That is, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it's not to suggest that there is any dimension of foolishness or weakness in God. It's just saying that by way of comparison... Man's wisdom pales in comparison, and man's strength pales in comparison. But how does this change my life? How does this impact my relationship with God, my understanding of the Bible, the way I live my life every day? If it's a theme of Scripture, and it is a theme of Scripture, you're going to see that, then, then how does that impact me? Well, let's look first at the way that this is a theme. And I'm going to look at several different examples. We're going to look at three 
from the Old Testament and then one from the New Testament, and there are more. You're familiar with these stories. And perhaps you've never connected these stories with this theme of Scripture. We're going to go back first to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and notice something that took place. Now, historically, the nation of Israel, this was after the sending of the 12 spies into the land of promise. Those spies came back, 10 with a negative report. Two said, let's go. But the people listened to those who had the negative message, and as a result of that, they would spend the next... The next, they would spend the rest of their lives, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, wandering in the wilderness. But there was an event that took place, and we read about this in the, the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, which illustrates this point. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses and they asked the question, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Now if you want to slap God in the face, this is how you do it. <laughs> well, God's not going to take that one lying down as we would say. So we see in verse 6, that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Now, if you saw a multitude dying from snake bites, what would have been your solution? Well, any of a number of solutions might have been presented through the years by physicians, by those who were familiar with the venom of snakes. And there may have been some connection between the solution and the outcome, or excuse me, yeah, yeah, the solution and the outcome. Whatever it is they said do, when you did it, you would expect a certain outcome. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Now, if you knew someone today who was bit by a snake, a rattlesnake, and the venom was spreading through their body, would you suggest to that person that they take a, a, a golden or bronze serpent, put it on a standard, and look at it? What's the connection between God's solution and the outcome? Can you, can you logic your way from the solution to the outcome? Does science explain why they would be healed when they looked at that serpent? Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the message that God is sending? You listen to what I say. You do what I say and then you will accomplish the desired outcome. 
Don't try to understand it. Your wisdom will not take you there. Your power, your strength will not take you there. You just have to listen to what God says. Another example is the walls of Jericho. We read about this after the Israelites took possession of the promised land in the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua. We read about them taking possession of the city of Jericho. How did they do it? Verse 1. Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. This was a gift from God. How are they going to take it? God said, verse 3, You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do this for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now, was there any logic in any of that? What great military commander would have suggested this is how you destroy a city? So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest, and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city. Let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. So you have the soldiers at the front. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. They came after the armed men. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, and then they came into the camp and they spent the night in the camp. They did this for, for six days. Now just imagine if you were one of the military leaders of the city of Jericho, and you're standing on the walls and you're watching this happen. For six days, this multitude is marching around the city just once. There's the military. There's seven priests ca carrying seven horns, and they're blowing them continuously. And then there's this what appears to be a little box, which was the Ark of the Covenant, and then there are soldiers behind them. They march around the city. And then they just go back to their camp. They do that for six days. What's the logic? How do you explain this military strategy? Verse 15. 
Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times on this day. What if they would have only marched around the city six times? We know the walls are going to fall. Would the walls have fell? What if they marched around the city only once on one day? The first day. What about the second day or the third day or the fourth day? And it stopped. Would the walls have fell? At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout. What if they would not have shouted? What if they did everything that God commanded them to do, but they stopped and didn't shout? Would the walls have fell? Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The si and then he goes down to verse uh, tw 20. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. What's the thing? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. What about Naaman the leper? You're familiar with that story in 2 Kings chapter 5. You remember how that Naaman was a military leader. He was a warrior. And he was also, but he was also a leper. And there was a servant girl who had been captured by the Syrians, a servant girl from the nation of Israel. And she went and she told her master that there is a prophet in Israel. And if you'll go and see that prophet, perhaps you can be healed. So a letter is written by the king of Syria to the king of Israel. It is sent. And ultimately, Naaman makes his way. And he is told by Elisha, the prophet, to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And you'll be healed. You'll be cleansed. Can science explain this? Would any of the physicians living at that time have suggested that a leper go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed? Naaman didn't like it. In verse 11 of this chapter, Naaman was furious. And he went away and he said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He had thought about it. On his way from Syria to Israel, he had put some thought into this. Surely this is the way God's going to operate. If he is truly a God who can, who can cure leprosy, this is the way he'll do it. And then in verse 12, he continues, Are not Abana and Frapara, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I mean, doesn't wisdom teach us that we're going to go to a better river instead of an inferior river? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Why did he do that? Because he failed to see that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the weakness of God is stronger than men. Logic was not going to get leprosy cured. Medicine was not going to get leprosy cured. What was it? His servants came near, spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down, he dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. What if he would have only dipped four times or five times or six times? Would his, lepro would his leprosy have been cleansed? No. He had to do what God told him if he wanted to be clean. The last example we'll look at from the New Testament, and that's, that's the healing of the man who was born blind. We read of this in John chapter 9. From his birth, he had never seen anything. We read about this when Jesus came to his disciples and he saw this man who had been born blind and this was an opportunity for Jesus to perform a miracle. He passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and this is what Jesus told him to do or what Jesus did. When he said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, he applied the clay to his eyes and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Now, if you knew someone who was blind, and you told that blind person, after having spat on the ground, making clay of the spittle, and applying the clay to their eyes, to go and wash in a pool, in a pond, in a lake, someplace close, what would their response have been? Well, he went. He washed and he came back, he was no longer blind. Could science explain it? Could logic explain it? What was the message? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see the theme? Do you see the theme? Now, when Paul came to the city of Corinth, again, this is a city that is filled up with itself. This is a city that believes in the science. This is a, a city that believes in the wisdom of men. This is a city that believes in man's logic and, and great philosophers. And here, here we see a message that's being preached. It's a message about a Savior who died on the cross. What will you do with that message? Well, it depends on how you look at the ways of God. It depends on how you look at the thoughts of God. In Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet said, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That was true in the case of the brass serpent. The falling of the walls of Jericho, the healing of Naaman the leper, the healing of the man who was born blind. What man must do is respect the ways of God and accept the fact that God is the potter and we are the clay. And he will choose what he wants to do with us. He will choose how he will save us. And God has chosen to save us as a matter of grace. 
In Ephesians, the second chapter in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. Why? Why is it a matter of grace? Why is it a matter of grace? That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see the connection? The wisdom and power of God, he chose to save us as a matter of grace. The brass serpent was an act of grace on God's part, and he expected the Israelites to look at that serpent through the eye of faith and believe that they would be healed. The walls of Jericho, that was a matter of grace. Man had to keep the commandments. He had to do what God required, but it was a matter of grace that the walls fell. Naaman the leper was healed, not by virtue of anything that he did. It was a matter of grace. The man born blind was healed as a matter of the grace of God. You see, when it comes to the plan of salvation... What we have to come to understand is that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now look at the passage. The passage that this verse is a part of. And, and look at it now through the eyes of what we've studied. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus, Jesus is the thing. He is the wisdom and the power of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, but the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He did that in the case of the brass serpent, the walls of Jericho, Naaman the leper, and the man born blind. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man, mark it, may boast before God. That's the message. That's the thing. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You're not there because of you. You're there because of him who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him boast, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts 
boast in the Lord. We're going to go to God in prayer now. And we're going to continue, in a sense, this discussion on God's plan of salvation by asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And you should understand by now, it's not a matter of man's wisdom. It's not a matter of man's strength. It's a matter of the power and the wisdom of God. The question is, if you're unforgiven, if you're lost, are you willing to look to the fiery serpent? Are you willing to, walk, to, to march around the city of Jericho seven times? Are, are you willing to go and be cleansed by the waters of the river Jordan? And are you willing to simply do what Jesus asked so that you'll be able to see? Let's go to God in prayer.